Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for these words, as challenging as they might be to us. We pray that you would make some sense of them and challenge us and comfort us with them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're sitting and watching television in the evening, drinking our cup of tea, and suddenly you hear this big boom outside the window, and um, it was the 5th of November, in case you needed to know what date it was and why that was happening. But of course, being where I'm from, it never occurs to me to remember that the 5th of November is a day when skittish dogs are up all night barking and howling at strange noises. And it seems like um, even from the 5th of November with the fireworks for Guy Fawkes that it lasts for about two weeks. People keep some of them and then randomly, you know, you get, you're eating dinner or it could even be earlier than all of a sudden you get this kind of explosive reminder that, oh, yeah, right, we're in November. Um, it, growing up in the States, you always prepare yourself because fireworks are something that happened on the 4th of July. You know it's the 4th of July because everybody decks out with American flags everywhere. They stick them in their yards and they're in the medians of the highways. And you know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. You're going to have a celebration for Independence Day and it's going to include explosions and fireworks. And so you go down to the river, as we often would, and the uh, city council would, you know, pay tens of thousands of dollars to put on a 20-minute display uh, with lights and colors and sounds and all kinds of really interesting things. And at the end of it, there's always a grand finale, which is like a bombardment, you know, where you have not just one going off and then another going off, but you have 10 or 11 going off at the same time for about five minutes. And then it just fizzes and it's all smoky and everyone goes home. Um, If you think of Matthew's gospel uh, in terms of Jesus's teaching ministry, um, where we read this parable this morning, the parable of the talents, it's an equivalent, these last few stories of, of grand finale fireworks show. He's telling parables, and they're all explosive to the imagination. They're all explosive to the way that people viewed their situation and the society they were in. And they come one after another, bam, 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 bam. And this parable, the parable of the talents, is sandwiched right into it. Um, it's, these last stories are the stories that he wants to leave his disciples with before he goes into Jerusalem Um, to his death. And the parable we read this morning, which we often refer to as the parable um, of the talents, the so-called parable of the talents, and I say that because the heading, parable of the talents, Jesus didn't name his parables. Um, Some editor um, in some, you know, publishing company uh, decided to call it the parable of the talents. It could have easily been called something else, but it was called the parable of the talents. Um, and we've come to understand talents in the modern day as some unique ability that we might have or something that we might offer to others. Uh, but in Jesus' time, talents were much different. Talents were something completely different. They were a financial description, a financial description. A talent in Jesus' day, according to the author Ald Glass, was equivalent to a laborer's earnings for about 16 and a half years. Sixteen and a half years. So imagine today if I translated the parable this way and I said a man, before going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his fortune to them. And to one he gave two and a half million dollars and to the other he gave a million. And to the other he gave 500,000. 
That's what the hearers in Jesus' day would have imagined was going on. And so their eyes are getting a little bit wide when they're hearing this story. They're going, well, that's more money than I can ever imagine somebody giving to me and saying, keep this safe, do something with this. The terms of the story would have made Jesus' listeners, uh, not even just his disciples, but all of his listeners, it would have made their eyebrows raise um, because no one did such things in their, in their lives, in their imaginations, in their lived experience. People were not that trusting or generous, nor did they have that much wealth accumulated in their lives to be able to even fathom doing something like entrusting it to somebody else. The kind of trust and generosity that Jesus describes in the Master was unbelievable. And it's that unbelievability that was precisely the point that Jesus was trying to make with his listeners. In this story, we have these first two slaves who find their amounts so unbelievable that they do something immediately. They take off immediately for the marketplace. For whatever reason, they felt free enough to be able to get to work. They had an appetite for risk, and they saw the possibility of what they could do with these resources that were entrusted to their care. And in the end, it ended up working out for them because they both ended up doubling their money. But the last slave has a very different response. Just like the other two, he acts immediately as well, except that instead of heading to the marketplace and investing the money, he gets a spade and starts digging a hole. Now here's something I learned this week. Apparently in rabbinic law, burying money was the safest thing that you could do. If someone gave you money and you buried it, you could not be held liable for anything that happened to it. It was kind of the no-risk pathway. So you have these starkly different responses to the same act of generosity. The question is, why? Interestingly, the one talent slave greets his master with these words, I knew that you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seeds. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. The question we must ask is, what evidence do we have in the story that would indicate that the master was this kind of cruel extortionist that the one-talent slave imagines that he is? Isn't it the case that we have precisely the opposite in the story? The master is, in fact, kind and trusting and generous, almost to the point where people might think him a little bit insane, What differentiates these two responses may be something as simple as someone's personality and their makeup. Some people are simply more comfortable with risk than others. But even more than that, when it comes to the life of faith, when it comes to God and living out our faith, it's equally true that our past and our personal experiences often dictate how we react and how we think of God. Some people have had very terrible experiences with faith. Some people have had very terrible experiences with church. And with Christians, in fact, when they think of God, it's hard for them to separate their own firsthand experiences of who or what they experienced and directly project them onto God. And so they map those experiences onto God, those harsh understandings, They project them onto God just like a screen. I'll give you a couple of examples, right? 
So some people don't like singing or praying using the word Father for God. For some people, it's a purely academic thing. God doesn't have a gender, so why would we use gendered language? In languages where there is no gender, they don't use gendered language for God. They have other words for God. But in English, we have gendered language, and so we use gendered. But we tend to use male gendered language for God. And people say, what's that about? Other people will say, aside from the theological point, they say, well, if we're going to use gendered language, why wouldn't we use the word mother? Why isn't the word mother equally as acceptable for talking about God as the word father? All right? And so some people simply have issues with this. There are others who can't use that word, interestingly, because of their own experiences that they've had with their own fathers. I've, I've met many people who, when there are songs sung in church that include the word father, choose to opt out and simply stand in respectful silence because they say to me, their experiences with their father were so horrible that they simply cannot use that term to think about God, to sing about God, to celebrate joyfully who God might be. They cannot shake the past and they don't want to link God with the concept of fatherhood. Fair enough. Fair enough. I also have friends who come from the LGBTQ community. They may be gay, lesbian, trans, and they grew up, unfortunately, in very conservative Christian churches. And they were basically made to feel as though they were an aberration of existence that there was something wrong with them, that they were innately sinful, that they were choosing a lifestyle. And they would say to me, you know, I've known I'm different since I was five years of age. And when I got to be about 13, I realized that it was a major issue for people in my church. And I'd always loved church. But when I started getting into youth group, I suddenly realized that I had to hide a part of who I was. And then Some pastors and preachers and Christians would just tell me that I was sinful and I was going to hell unless I change. And I tried to change, but I don't know how to change that part of myself. And so I literally had to walk away from church because it just reminded me every day and every week of this terrible future that I might have and that God might actually hate who I am fundamentally. And so they say, I can't have anything to do with church. I can't have anything to do with um, the Christian religion because it's hurt me so terribly. And so for my own well-being, for my own sanity, for my own future, for my own sense of wanting and staying alive, I have to part ways. I have to put something in the ground where I say, I'm not going that direction. And when I hear these stories, in the back of my mind, I say, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, here's the interesting thing that I think this parable teaches us, is that in the end, you always get the God you choose to believe in. You always get the God you choose to believe in. And if you believe in a peevish, tyrannical God, then you just might find yourself at the end of your life feeling tossed out in the outer darkness. But that's something that you do to yourself. The parable that Jesus tells is not necessarily about investment or return on investment. It's about the reign of God. That's what Jesus is telling this parable for. He wants his disciples, and by extension, us here in the future, to understand that Jesus is establishing something radically different, some kind of a kingdom that will be different. And one of the things that he wants them to understand, his disciples, that they can't get their heads around, is that he's going to go into Jerusalem and be crucified, and then he's going to die, and they think that's the end. But he promises them that it's not the end. 
that he'll return. But he wants them to know that in that in-between time, he wants them to live with boldness. He wants them to live their life in an active way. Jesus imagines his disciples um, living actively in this reality that he calls the kingdom. And we, in this church, we have that same thing that we wrestle with, and we've wrestled it with for, for decades, this idea of what does it look like to have bold action, to be Jesus' disciples in a bold way. When we think of the room that we're sitting in and the decision to build this building, it was a bold decision, an act of faith to do this. Right? It was a bold decision to fundraise, to demolish the old church, to build this building, to open it up to the community. It was a bold decision that took faith. And many of you who did the fundraising and tried to figure out how it was going to get over the line will remember the conversations and the frustrations you had. Is, was this the good decision? Did we make the right decision? Is it going to happen? And it happened. And the same thing is true when we establish a kindergarten downstairs. There were some people... And it's in the records, there were some people who thought it wasn't a good idea. That it wasn't a financially feasible idea, that it wasn't a good plan, it wasn't sustainable, and what if this and what if that. And now we realize that it was a very bold act of faith to invest in Uplands. And we now have the fruit of that investment, of that bold thinking and that bold action. Because now we have people in the community that I meet at Remuera Primary School when I go to pick up the kids who walk up to me and they say, hello, and I don't have no idea who they are. And I say, hi, uh, is, are one of your children in my children's class? And they say, oh no, my kids went to Uplands. And I meet so many people in this community that have a connection with our church through our kindergarten who sometimes will say that used to be our church. They never sat here in the pews on a Sunday morning, but they had this sense of connection because of the work of the kindergarten staff, because of the way that the church chose to support that, not just as an income source, but as a ministry to families, to react to them as people and as families and children and meet their needs. And the same is true of the op shop. Where's Margaret? Margaret's here. The op shop was the same thing. It was a bold idea to establish an op shop down the back of a building that isn't out on the street, has no street frontage. People have to go to the back to find it. But for 25 plus years, we've been able to provide um, not only secondhand goods and sustain, find a way to sustainably um, give these things to other people, to sell them to other people, but there's a community that's formed around the op shop. There's more people who don't come to church that volunteer in the op shop that do come to church. There are people who are connected to this faith community through the good work that happens down there. It was a bold decision, and I'm happy to say that Session has just gone through a process of thinking about the op shop and is wanting to basically reinvigorate it and make sure that it has a long life and invest in it so that those parts of it, the community connection pieces and the serving the marginalized and the vulnerable, that those can be critical to what it means to be Somerville. All of these things are reminders of the ways in which small, seemingly insignificant groups of Christians in the eastern suburbs of Auckland can make an impact that others can't see and that we can't actually estimate ourselves. And we continue to do these bold things 
One of the things that we've done in the past few years is simply just say out loud that we want to welcome and embrace people who are in the LGBTQ community and that we want to be bold in that. And we've put that kind of out there with these banners and rainbow colors. And I can't believe the amount of people, when we have community events on a Saturday and I walk through here, the amount of people who are waiting for an event to start either downstairs or in the hall, who are hanging out in the foyer, who will be reading those banners and start taking pictures of them. People who walk by and take pictures of them. Who ask me, is it okay if I take pictures of them? Yes, and share them to your social media profiles. <laughs> These kinds of small things that we think are just, they are bold acts, particularly when our denomination and churches in general in New Zealand are very much not the kinds of places where those people who've had those terrible experiences with God and church can find a place that is truly welcoming and embracing of who they are. And to wrap up, I'll just say, we are on the precipice once again of the need for vision and bold action. Right? In six weeks, there's going to be another phase of transition. And yet, I remind you that this is not something that's new. Uh, that these circumstances, while they've been thrust on all of us in some ways, um, and they're worrying, provide an opportunity for us to come back to our basics, our standards, our values, and to really think and dream about what we have and not what we don't have, and to view God as a generous, loving, and giving God who will embrace our risk-taking rather than view God as kind of a tyrannical, um, you know, somebody who's going to punish us for failure and we better not mess up. There's always better to dream and to risk because God will honor that, not only our creativity and our successes, but also our failures. And it's better to do that than to sit and wring our hands and worry. And Somerville is well-placed, better than most, to be bold and courageous in this next season if we will have the faith and the confidence enough to give it a try. So may God grant us that trust and the faith of those first two slaves who went immediately and thought, oh, I'm going to do big things with this. And praise to the God who's trusting and generous and loving to give us everything we need to do something bold and creative. Amen.